Lord, we thank you for the word of God, that you are always faithful to us. Um, we come to, um, to glean, to learn, and to discover. Um, be in our midst, Lord. We need your word to become real, palpably real among us. Uh, we ask that you will do that for your glory and for our good. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so we've been going through uh, the characteristics of a disciple. Discipleship is kind of a buzzword in Christian circles. We use it uh, perhaps quite a bit, I think. And what does discipleship mean? Discipleship, it's many, many definitions perhaps. The simplest one is following Jesus. We are called to follow Jesus. And uh, we're looking at that. Today we're looking at the subject of prayer. came across some research uh, millennials, uh, I love you. You know that I love you. Um, millennials, there's a lot of research being done on you. Um, we have two millennial daughters, so uh, I'm always mindful of that. Um, uh, getting a bowl, getting a spoon, getting some milk, and getting a cereal, getting cereal is a little bit of a challenge for 40% of millennials. Millennials, I love you. Two years ago, in response to declining cereal sales, market researchers went out looking for answers as to why younger people were opting out of the convenience food we call cereal uh, that had fed their parents and grandparents. This is a, um, an article that appeared recently in Christianity Today in the opinion section. Uh, and according to the New York Times, researchers found the reason Breakfast, cereal, the whole bother, the bowl, the spoon, the milk, involved involved too much work. Almost 40% of millennials surveyed by Mintel, whoever that, those people are, for its 2015 report said cereal was an inconvenient breakfast choice because they had to clean up after eating it. So I don't know, Marianne and I were talking, what are the other options, right? So... Uh, like I guess you could microwave a, burri- a breakfast burrito, and then all you got to do is take off the wrapper, right? So that I mean that taking off the wrapper, I mean I put in a, a lot of work there. So uh, author Jen Michaels uh, observes uh, bodily living is just too difficult. Um, it's quite an article. I can pass it on to you. We have even greater now. Th- this is the author speaking. We have even greater capacities to spare ourselves bother. And efficiency and convenience are delivered with less and less effort. Alexa reorders our toilet paper and turns on music. From the comfort of my office cubicle, I can control uh, my cooking in my kitchen, ensuring precisely cooked roast upon my return home. If I've forgotten to turn down my home's heat during vacation, I connect to an app on my smartphone Ease delivered with the swipe of my thumb or the command of my voice. Uh, The author goes on to say, let there be light. With the push of every button, my illusion grows. That exertion is the enemy of modern life. Overstatement? Following Christ is to be an intentional lifestyle, and it doesn't happen by the swipe of a thumb or the command of our voice. 
Uh, and it's been said that choice is the most important word for modern people, and we are choosing the easy path, aren't we? Take away choice, and you have robbed people of almost everything. What would happen if something were to rise up in us as a desire that floods our hearts such that we would be willing to deny ourselves? And this choosing center, this command and control center would begin to look like choosing an embodied life that includes exertion. (laughs) That we would become consciously aware of following Jesus, relinquishing even our right to ourselves. Do you see how bold and how radical the call of Jesus is? In fact, the call of Jesus, as I have said before, creates a crisis in our lives. Do we really know what life is? Do we know what the purpose of human life is? Jesus has come in the lives of the disciples, and he's come into our lives to redefine for us what truly is the life that is life indeed. So just by way of uh, of just a quick overview, you can see some of the main ideas there as I look at this text. Um, This text is uh, kind of a downer, isn't it? I mean, it's a, okay, uh, the the disciples fail, a simple task. Just pray while Jesus, be his support team while Jesus prays. Be on the watch while, while Jesus prays. Right? So I just have a couple, a couple of ideas, perhaps a little too wordy here. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how can prayer arise in our hearts as a result of this passage. How can, this, how can we not just walk away going, well, those disciples just, they just couldn't pray. You know, that's, that's what the text says. And then we can... How can this text actually help us understand uh, what, it look, what it looks like for us to, to engage in prayer? So I have these ideas. Prayer, the disposition of dependence, arises in our hearts when we see the approachability of our magnificent Savior. Explore that for, for a short bit. And then prayer, the disposition of dependence, arises in our hearts in the context of failing badly. Is there any hope for us who pray, who perhaps think of ourselves as praying poorly? And then third, prayer, the disposition of dependence, arises in our hearts as we grasp what we are up against in our own hearts and in the day-to-day of following God into his mission. All right, let's unfold this a little bit here. Um, The disposition of dependence. I I thought that captured what prayer really is. Uh, In this passage, we do see the approachability of our Savior, meaning he is becoming Isaiah's suffering servant. This has been a process in his whole public ministry. When John baptized him, when he associated with sinners and the Father spoke, which is perhaps the only time in the Bible that happens, and, and the Spirit appears like a dove, landing on him, anointing him, empowering him for ministry. The Father's voice says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He is associating with sinners, and this pleases the Father. This characterizes the whole of Jesus' life. And now we're seeing him take on all the characteristics of Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows 
afflicted with grief. It's 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 in being embodied. Isaiah fifty three is being embodied right here in Gethsemane. We're seeing his magnificence that he and he alone would go for you, would suffer for you, would realize the great weight of what it would look like to to take upon his own body the sins of his church, of his people. He is approachable for you when you are experiencing sorrow. It's a sad thing to suffer silently, to not have anyone there with you. Maybe that's what you prefer. Perhaps you feel comfortable with that. Tim Conkling was just telling me he just visited this week. He's a missionary we support, and he had to leave this morning. But he was telling me that in China, that if you are suffering, you have an ailment, you have something, that your neighbors and friends rush to be with you. They don't want you to be alone. Now, here is Jesus alone in his pain. Do you feel alone in your pain? Do you feel that no one can understand what you're going through? Do you feel that? It may be. And yet we know that Jesus was tempted and experienced all of our fallenness in that sense. He experienced the fullness of what it means to be in this condition, in this world. He was without sin, but he is increasingly experiencing what it means to suffer for sinners. And we are tempted to think to ourselves, no one understands me. This passage tells us that he is magnificent. That means that he is willing to explore and to engage and to pursue every aspect of our experience in this life. He is so magnificent as a Savior that he has brought justification to you, this remarkable legal idea that you as a sinner are present before the law of God, crying out, I have no righteousness. And yet through Jesus, Romans 5.1 says that having been justified, we have peace with God. That's his magnificence, that he has given you his very righteousness. Hebrews 10.14 says that he has, through his atonement, perfected forever those who come to him. And so uh, we, we have a magnificent Savior. We see him here struggling like us at the highest levels of struggle in this human condition. He is acquainted with a grief that goes far beyond anything we could understand. But he is, in this experience, approachable for we who suffer. As you look at Jesus, I hope as you sense, as you read him in Scripture, as we preach him here at Trinity Church, as we, as we share in small groups, as we talk about Jesus, I hope you sense that he is your Savior and he is one you can approach and know and cast your burden upon and that you can grow in this disposition of dependence. 
There's no aspect of your life that you need to hide from him. He understands you and is an empathetic high priest fully grasping all that you are going through. May this foster this disposition of dependence. And now let's look sort of the main idea. I, I think it's the rather main idea of the, the passage. The prayer, secondly, the prayer, this disposition of dependence arises in our hearts in the context of failing badly. I just wonder how the disciples responded when Mark's gospel is circulating around the churches. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's me. That yeah, I didn't know I would be in that. Uh, didn't know it would my my failure would be recorded there. But there they are, the disciples on display. I wonder if the disciples earlier in that that day or a year or two earlier, if they were asked. And by the way, if Jesus ever asks you to pray uh, with him, and when he's needing your support, do you think you can? pray on his behalf? Will you be there to to support him? And of course, they would almost be indignant at the question. Of course. And one of the subtexts of this passage is that it seems pretty simple, isn't it? What, What Jesus is asking of them. It's not complicated. There's something about night that requires you in the military to know what night watch is, right? Because there's day watch as well. But in the daytime, we're pretty confident, aren't we? Well, we can see things more clearly, right? And night, night requires a little bit more watchfulness, especially if you're camping, right? And they choose to sleep. The heaviness of life's trials have, have gotten to them. They're weary and they're tired and they just fall asleep. All of us have an experience of people failing us. Perhaps you're here and someone you're recovering from, someone has failed you. and They failed to love you when you needed to be loved. Jesus understands you and what you've gone through. And perhaps when we feel the failure of others, we also wonder if God cares. And if we work this through in our own sense, if we about our own lives, we realize that we have not been obedient to God. We don't have righteousness of our own. We have failed badly under God's law, right? This should produce for us a, a compassion for our brothers and sisters who fail us for those who at work fail us. What's unique about this passage is, though, that Jesus is all alone, and he's experiencing human failure. He's bearing our sorrows. What kind of sorrow would that be? It's the sorrow of failed love from others. Have you ever had to bear sorrow alone. Again, a theme here. He's with you. He's your Savior. Have you ever been in a crowd of people and thought, no one knows me and I'm dying inside? There are times when we feel that no one can really identify with what we're going through. Even though we are in a, a, around people, 
were dying inside. This passage tells us something about what Jesus was experiencing, that he was dying inside. Throwing his body onto the ground, realizing what this was going to take, what what this experience would be like. Of course, what he's trying to train the disciples in is this. Life is hard. Doing ministry feels impossible. And you must prepare your heart for it. You cannot do this in your own power and strength. You must disengage in order to engage. And they're not ready for ministry. And that's why the story is here. And there's also a contrast going on. We know that these who have failed so badly, Christ doesn't give up on them. And we know that they become preachers in the book of Acts, particularly Peter. And they become people who can pray. Acts chapter 4, persecution comes upon the church. And they pray and asking only not to be delivered from persecution, but they just pray for boldness in preaching. They've got the mission of the kingdom down. Of course, here they're, they're failing badly. Can there be hope for us as we look at our miserable prayer lives, right? There's not, I'll tell you, there's nothing more guilt-inducing than, how's your prayer life, <laughs> right? Not many of us answer confidently about that. Prayer exposes us. Prayer reveals to our own hearts our plans. Prayer is an invitation, God, invade my plans, It's an awareness of coming before the one who you're saying your will in heaven should be done on earth and it should be done now in my life. That's why we, we hesitate to pray. We are sure of our plans. We don't want to die inside. That doesn't feel good, right? Another observation about this passage is that this idea of human failure. We observe that humanity is asleep while salvation is being accomplished. He's instructing them to watch and to pray, to, to adopt this disposition of dependence. Let me think about, let's think for a moment about you and I look out here, I see many, many competent people, planners in the military, officers. I see other people with very responsible positions in in civic life, civil life. You don't need to pray to send an email, do you? Interesting, isn't it, the modern world we live in? Electricity and running water. All these things seem to be how the world really runs. This is this electricity, the, the digital age, this technology, all this, these revolutions going on.
Perhaps you don't need to pray to send an email, perhaps. Scripture tells us to pray in all things, right? But to do mission, that's different. To do mission, to be involved in mission, to embrace the call to be a disciple, now that's a different story. You can swipe your, your, your thumb on your smartphone and get your app doing whatever you want. But I, let's talk about mission. Let's talk about kingdom stuff. Let's talk about discipleship. Let's talk about difficulty. Now we've moved into a different realm of living. The disposition of dependence. They have and they will be trained and they will embrace the training and they will embrace this kingdom and they will rise out of this failure and God in his great grace will reestablish them in mission and they will, they will struggle, they will get it. They will begin to pray for the kingdom. Watch the book of Acts. See, the, see this in technicolor. Watch what happens to these who here fail badly. What can rise out of our failing badly in prayer? An honesty. A repentance. Come to the end of your rope, as it were. Come to the end of your, 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 your attempts to control this life. What can, come, what can rise out of our failure is we learn what's needed. We learn what's needed. And this leads us then to just a third idea. Prayer, the disposition of dependence, arises in our hearts as we grasp what we are up against in our own hearts and in the day-to-day of following God into his mission. The book of Hebrews chapter 3 tells us to exhort one another daily. You need, I need, the kind of thing we're hearing right now, daily. Imagine how different your life would be if we actually did gather, let's say 6 a.m. every every day. Think about how different your life would be when this is framing, these priorities of the kingdom are framing your life. The day-to-day of your life is to be an experience of dependence. I have, this last month, I, man, it's, <laughs> uh, I don't know how you perceive my job. <laughs> uh, it's been, uh, I feel like I'm trying to uh, uh, construct an airplane while it's flying. Been in a lot of meetings. A lot of things. This these last thirty days have just flown by. I've literally just tried to figure out what day it is at times. Perhaps that's your experience. What are you up against in your own hearts? Verse thirty eight. Watch and pray. This is the the central teaching. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into what? Look at verse thirty eight. Fall into temptation. The prepared heart, the prepared mind, 
And then there's this observation. Jesus knew they were willing. Look at that. He understands they're willing. The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. At this critical moment, they slept while on duty. And this will be a kind of discovery of what they're up against, even within themselves, as they seek to follow Jesus. I hope that we are, as a church, a place that it's okay to discover what you're up against, to discover the sinner that Jesus saved. I hope we're a church where you could say, man, I I messed up here, and I was selfish here, and I was inconsiderate here. I hope you feel safe with me, our elders. We stumble forward, folks. Why is this story here? It's it's, 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 to, it's to, first of all, to magnify Christ, who remained faithful. It's also to say, wow, Jesus built his church on these, these kinds of people. <laughs> There's hope for me. Prayer arises in our hearts, the disposition of dependence, when we realize what we are up against in our own hearts. Novelist Joseph Conrad, who wrote that famous novel, Heart, Hearts of Darkness, Heart of Darkness, he writes another book called The Secret Sharer of a Sea Captain, and he is about to journey on a ship on which he has never set foot. And uh, Joseph Conrad writes this of the captain, what I, what I felt most, says the captain, was being a stranger to the ship. Then he adds, and if all the truth must be told, I was a stranger, I was somewhat a stranger to myself. What are we afraid of? Or what are we up against when we think about prayer? Well, part of what we're, we're up against is we're kind of strangers to ourselves. See, the disciples are going to have an experience of self-knowledge coming out of this. At critical moments, without the empowerment of the Spirit, I will not be faithful. We, in prayer, might be afraid of what we see of ourselves. Think about this. Why do we avoid prayer? And I'm making that as my assumption. Why don't we pray willingly, freely, openly, consistently? What, what's, what's going on? Interesting, isn't it? Are we afraid to discover something about ourselves before our Heavenly Father? Might be. These who come alive may have been strangers to themselves. They thought they knew themselves. Peter, of course, thought he knew himself. You can just drive that question. Do the disciples know themselves, even as they follow Jesus? You see, what we're up against is our perception of ourselves. And what we resist is that I don't want to go to the needy place. Perhaps there's a preacher who's, who, who imagines himself eloquent, able, organized, 
skilled, trained. Does that man in the pulpit need the Spirit of God? Does that man need a desperate cry of the heart? Or is there the trust, perception of himself as no longer needy, no longer desperate? Calvin said that prayer is the chief means by which we by which God communicates his grace to us. Why don't we have a, a closer sense of God's grace and empowerment? Because we don't pray. We're up against also one last thought here. We're up against a kind of dividedness. Jesus describes it. The the spirit is willing. There's a willingness. And then there's a, a part of us that is, is unable. The flesh is weak. It's a kind of ambivalence in us. Kind of an ambivalence. Not indifference, but ambivalence. There's a kind of dividedness in us. And it's uncomfortable to come before God and then to realize my ambivalence, the way I've been acting, the way I've been speaking. It's kind of uncomfortable to receive his mercy. I'm inconsistent. I'm sluggish. I don't want to be around someone who points this out to me. But what we're really doing is we're assessing ourselves based on our own performance. And only when we feel good about our Christian walk, only when we feel good about ourselves, do we then say, oh, I'll pray now. So it's a performance-based way of living. Of course we are ambivalent. All right, let's get used to it. Of course we're, we're inconsistent. The deeper we look, we like the Apostle Paul, Romans 7, I, the things I want to do, I don't do. I think that's a spiritually mature person. Would you not agree? <laughs> a, perhaps one of the most spiritually mature people who ever walked this earth said, I'm aware of my ambivalence. And so, what are we up against? Well, we're up against this ambivalence, this sense of, of, of I've got the only way I can come before my Heavenly Father is I have to have good enough effort that I feel good about. Of course, we fall sh- short radically. It's hard for us to be honest about ourselves, but in the gospel, we are comforted because ultimately this is not about us. It certainly is de- demonstrated here in, with the disciples. And Jesus is the one who is the faithful one. Jesus is the one who presses on. This passage doesn't end with the failure of the disciples. It, this passage focuses on the accomplishment of Jesus who is determined even in light of human failure to press on. He knows that even more human failure is going, failure to love is, is ahead of him. Verse 42, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Because Jesus was bold, We can be bold in our prayer.
We are told to be bold in Hebrews 10, 19. We are told to be bold. Look past your performance. Look past your ambivalence. Look past your fear that you might discover something about yourself before your Heavenly Father. That's going to be very important and probably very good for us. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. It's his performance in his flesh. It's the one who was never ambivalent and never divided, always yielding to the Father's will. It is through that one who presents his blood, and he is committed to helping assist you in single-heartedness. The shaping of a single-heartedness that will increasingly capture your life. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure Water. Do you feel free to communicate to your Heavenly Father about what's on your heart? To pray in order to be prepared for God's mission. Preparing yourself for Monday, Sunday. Preparing yourself for, the, for how God would lead you. Perhaps a conversation is coming up. An individual you may have a conversation with. Something's, something is underway for those who are preparing their hearts and are being led by the Spirit. This is one of the characteristics an attitude, a behavior of a disciple. Let me pray for us. We come to glory in the, in, the, in the one who was faithful. We come to glory in the one who had a full heart, full of dependence on the Father. Father, may we be comforted in your grace that secures our eternal presence with you. We love you. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the table we're about to enjoy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.